Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right. I didn't know if we were going to be able to get to this episode today. I usually record these you know, a week or so out, so they're ready to post in time. But I've been a little under the weather, not able to record a podcast. Voice was shot, I'm sick for a little bit there. And instead of recording shows early, what I did instead was spend a little more time diving into some planning for the next couple episodes. And then that got me really excited and I wanted to do this even sooner. So still got a little bit of a scratchy voice, but uh, hopefully you can bear with me as we dive into the first story during this series on D-Day talking about Omaha Beach. Now, as I was trying to decide exactly which story to tell on Omaha, I just kind of ran into some roadblocks because this is such such an important piece of American military history. And there were so many things going on in that beach just in just on the short morning of June 6, 1944. How do you narrow it down to one? And one story doesn't tell, you know, the story of Omaha Beach. Everybody had such individual experiences from the times they landed to the units to what their job was. I mean, there's there's books upon books upon books written about Omaha. There's no way I can even scratch the surface with one episode. I'm going to give it a shot to maybe scratch the surface with with a handful here. And I think the way I'm going to tackle it is rather than talk about Omaha at a big level, at a high level, we're going to work through the beaches, the eight sectors of Omaha Beach from east to west. And today we're going to start with Fox Red Sector with the story of First Lieutenant Jimmy Monteith one of the four Medal of Honor recipients from that day. Now, Omaha Beach was one of five landing beaches, right? We had Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juneau, and Sword. The Allied landing beaches, this front, if you will, opening a front on the European continent, was 50 miles wide. There were some gaps in there, so it's not like it was 50 miles of continuous beachhead. But if you think about that, that's both you know, really big and really small. I mean, it pales in comparison to, you know, the Western front that stretched across all of Europe in the first world war. And when you're talking about, you know, the jumping off point to move across Europe, 50 miles is tiny. But when you're talking about planning and resourcing the individual soldiers on the ground in combat, in the, in the midst of combat, 50 miles is all of a sudden a really big stretch to keep track of. So the way the Allied planners did this was they broke down each beach even further. So it wasn't that people just landed at Omaha Beach. They landed at various sectors. The sectors were broken down in two ways, one phonetically and then by colors. You're going to hear some of these phonetic names we use today, you know, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. The phonetic alphabet that the military uses has changed over time. And there was a big change after World War II with the adoption of the NATO phonetic alphabet kind of formalized or standardizing it, I should say. In World War II, we used a little bit of a different one. As an example, it was Abel, Baker, Charlie, Dog, Easy, Fox, George. Some of those are the same. Some of those are a little bit different, but that's what you're going to hear when we're looking at 
the D-Day plans and on Omaha Beach. To break that down even further, because again, Omaha is a five-mile stretch within the overall overall landing beaches, even breaking that down just into a couple sectors maybe wasn't enough. The Allied planners added colors to that. They would use green, white, or red as they went. This started at and started at Utah and went all the way down to Sword. And the stretch in Omaha included the beaches, the sectors, Charlie, Dog Green, Dog White, Dog Red, Easy Green, Easy Red, Fox Green, and Fox Red. Now, there was some debate about whether or not Omaha was a suitable invasion beach, I guess I'll say. It has some unique characteristics. It's kind of concave, not a lot. If you look on a map, it just just a little bit of that concave feature, but that means that German defenses can more easily cover the beaches, especially the middle points. There are some steep cliffs that rise up behind Omaha Beach that aren't really present in some of the other beachheads, and that means the German defenders can dig into those cliff sides, build on top of them, greater fields of fire, greater um, fields of vision, and then adds an extra impediment for the allied forces trying to get inland, whether it's the soldiers or the tanks or the trucks moving the equipment in. The problem is it has to be taken. It's in the middle of the beaches, right? If we move down the line, we've got Utah, then Omaha, then Gold, Juno, and Sword. If we don't take Omaha, it opens up a gap in the allied beachhead that could be exploited, a bubble that with a fair amount of German soldiers right in the middle that could thwart the, you know, the follow-on phases of the invasion. Now, Omaha is very heavily defended all up and down these cliffs. You have barbed wires, trenches, sizable concrete, reinforced concrete strong points, really the entire length of the beach. A decision was made pretty early on, not in direct relation to the decision to go to Omaha, but a way to help improve the odds of success when the soldiers hit the beaches. And that was the inclusion of tanks in the landing force. And if you think about it, if you could just snap your fingers and say, we're going to have tanks on the beaches next to the infantry as they're storming the German defenses, of course it makes sense. Why not? It's It's quite the asset to have in your back pocket. But the challenge right away is how do you get them there? How do you get these tanks from England onto a ship? Maybe that's the easy part. How do you get them from the ships ferrying them across the English Channel onto the beaches of Normandy at the right time to be able to support the infantry? There were a handful of things considered, and the solution is something that we call the DD tank. stands for dual drive tank. And what it looks like is, well, the Sherman tank was the most often used. The American Sherman tank was mostly used in this capacity. It's like a skirt that shoots up around the tank from the tracks. Almost looks like a uh, like a bed sheet just in reverse going up. And it, it provides an area, kind of provides flotation for the tank. And then the propellers or the, the motor is configured in a way to kind of have a propeller to help move the DD tank ashore really slow. But if you think about it, the important part of getting the tank from ship to shore isn't so much speed as much as it is just don't sink. 
I mean, these things are, I want to say 34 ton tanks. So just not sinking is going to be a good move. And the reason that we had to come up with this idea of a swimming tank or a floating tank is when you're assaulting these beaches like Omaha, you have to keep the landing zones open. Landing zones, not the right way to say it, but the approaches to the beach open. The small landing craft that we would use known as Higgins boats carried, you know, 36 or so soldiers. They were small, relatively maneuverable. And God forbid one gets hit, knocked out. It just takes up a little piece of land. It can be moved out of the way relatively easily. The ships that the tanks are coming across on, these 34-ton tanks, are big. They're still designed to run up on shore and drop their ramp and have vehicles and personnel run right off. And we would use them later in the invasion, even on June 6th. But in these initial waves, if one of those large landing ship tanks, LSTs, gets hit and, and beaches right in the middle of Omaha, it changes the dynamic of the battlefield because all of a sudden the remaining craft that are coming in are canalized to one direction or another. You have that happen two or three times. You might not be able the folks that got ahead of those tanks might be stranded for the rest of the fight. So the swimming tanks is the solution. And it's, it's really heavily debated at Omaha more so than the other beaches. It was used all up and down the front on D-Day, but it worked in a lot of other areas. I think at Utah, it was something like 27 out of 28 tanks made it ashore. Big success at Omaha. It was something like five out of 36. And you know, we have the luxury now of looking back and being the armchair quarterback and, you know, you should have done this. And why didn't you think of that? A lot of that reason for the tank failure, which was tragic. It wasn't just that the infantry didn't get their support. There were tank crews that went under as their tanks sunk, drowned before they even had, you know, sight of the shore. Often what's pointed to is two major issues. They were launched too far out um, due in large part to the heavy volume of German fire and they maybe couldn't make the entire swim into the beach. But also the waves were four, five, six feet at times in the English Channel where the tanks were launched. And much of the testing had been done in around one foot or in water that had one foot of waves. So they, they just couldn't handle it. And it's a tough call if you think about it. Do you just not try? And of course, if you try and it doesn't work, as we saw, it costs lives. But the invasion's on the line. So they... You know, the planners did the planners and the executors at this point did the best they could and made the decisions they had to. And the tanks just the tanks did work out, just not not as planned, maybe is the way to say it. So just after midnight on June 6, 1944, First Lieutenant Jimmy Monteith and his men are given their you know last meal, I think is how they would have called it. Their last meal on the ship, maybe is a better way to say it. They would then climb down rope nets to the waiting landing craft bobbing in the English Channel below. This is something, you know, in the dark, in the early morning hours, two, three o'clock in the morning. This is something they practice often, pretty frequently. Um, not just climbing down the rope nets, which is a challenge under that much weight, but also doing it in the water. But just like, just like everything in combat, just like everything in war, it never goes as expected when the time comes. And again, they hadn't trained this in as rough of seas as they would experience on June 6th. So these men that are climbing down the rope nets, Jimmy Monteith and his men climbing down these rope nets, 
they're used to getting to the bottom of the net and stepping into the landing craft, the flat bottomed, slippery, moving landing craft. Even in the calmest of waters, moving from one ship to the other can be a challenge. Again, especially under the amount of weight these soldiers are carrying, sometimes 100 pounds or more. What they see in the dark, or don't see, I guess, maybe, because it's so dark on the morning of June 6th, is the waves and the swales in the water are causing gaps underneath the rope nets to where these soldiers will get to the bottom of the net and have three, four, six, eight feet to go before they hit the the landing craft. And they have to either try to time it just right to where the landing craft comes back up, or in some cases, jump. And think about that. This is, you know, how many people broke their legs because it happened or their wrist or anything else and had to be hauled back up. They've trained with their men for months, maybe years. And in the moments before they're ready to assault the Normandy beaches, now they're in the hospital for a broken foot. Or how about the other side of that? Somebody sprains an ankle. How often do you think that happened? Well, you're not going to sit this out just because of a sprained ankle, but now you're assaulting a beach where your ability to move quickly across this open terrain while you're being shot at is a matter of life and death. And at the very last minute, you sprain your ankle. I think that would have been, it's hard to think about that, but there most certainly were people in that exact situation. After they load the landing craft, Jimmy Monteith and his men begin circling, waiting to form up for the call to go into the beaches. Monteith is a platoon leader in L Company, part of the 16th Infantry Regiment of the 1st Infantry Division. He's already seen combat in both North Africa and Sicily. He's been with the unit for a period of time. He dropped out of Virginia Tech in 1941, was quickly drafted, and then the Army saw that there was a little bit of college in his background and and, uh, quickly commissioned him as an officer. And while he's been through combat in the past, this is going to be different. Lieutenant Monteith is going to be leading the first wave on Omaha Beach. And it's this type of thing that I spend time wondering is he knows that. But if you're in his shoes or say that you you know you're going to take part in something like D-Day and you don't know what it's going to look like, right? Would you rather be in the first wave where you don't know? Maybe those German defenses are all knocked out. Maybe they'll surrender when they see this vast naval armada. Or would you rather go in the second wave knowing full well what happened to the first? I don't know. I think everybody might might look at that a little bit differently. But either way, of course, Lieutenant Monteith and his men didn't have any choice. They loaded their landing craft at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning on June 6th and started getting ready for the call. At 5.50 a.m., the, pre-invas- the pre-invasion bombardment kicks off. This is naval gunfire followed shortly thereafter by bombers. This is also a big topic when we're talking about Omaha Beach, and it's something we're going to focus in on in later episodes. We're trying to focus on certain areas for each one of these stories, again, because it's such a vast story to tell. Around this time during the naval bombardment, the tanks start taking off, and many of them sink some right away. And think about what that means for the infantry, like Monteith and his men riding in, seeing that, you know, this is the support you're counting on. And you look out the side and there's, you know, you watch a tank just go under, or maybe you don't even see the tank go under. You just see 
four guys with their life vests waiting to be picked up. Who the heck are they? It would suck to see that banking on some sort of armored support on the beach and finding out when you're still a few hundred yards from shore, that's not going to happen. The first wave is set to land at 630 in the morning and they start making their way towards shore. Now, one of the unfortunate aspects of being in the first wave is the German defenders don't have anything else to shoot at. You know, the large naval, the large shore batteries are shooting out at the, the naval ships at sea. But when we're talking the smaller field artillery pieces, you know, maybe the 88s, the mortars, especially, and then the heavy machine guns, even light machine guns. When that first wave gets in range, the Germans aren't distracted by any other targets. They can pour 100% of their fire into Monteith and his men headed towards shore. They'll catch hell. Add to that, that Monteith's company, due to the smoke and the confusion and the waves and the wind and everything that's happening right now, they get pushed off track a little bit, about 500 yards away from their sister company, which if you're going to assault something like this, you'd like to at least have somebody else maybe take some of that heat away from you. But as they come within range of the German defenses, Monteith and his company are, again, 500 yards away, heading towards a beach that's not even scheduled to take a landing. They're alone, essentially, and they're an easy target. And what this means is that by the time Monteith and his men hit the beach, there's only about 125 men in his company that are combat ready. That's around 50% from what they started. They end up landing on a beach called Fox Red. Fox Red is the easternmost beach, and it is not slated to... It's not slated to have any landings in the first wave. There's a, a draw there called the F1 draw that wasn't determined to be suitable for um, for use. So we kind of shifted forces a little bit west. But Monteith and his men find themselves right on Fox Red, again, alone. Now, the area at Fox Red has a unique feature on Omaha Beach, and it's these kind of shingle cliffs right up against the water's edge that you don't see in other parts of Omaha. In fact, there's a famous picture. You'll see some soldiers that look a little bit dazed on Omaha beach and they're sitting up against a kind of a rock wall. That's Fox red beach. It's behind this wall that Monteith and his men are able to take a little bit of cover from the Germans manning the high ground. And you start to see the, the junior leader initiative on D day that, that took the day. I mean, Omaha beach, D-Day, June 6th, um, the airborne landings all up and down Omaha, Utah for the for the Canadians and the British as well. It is a war. It is a fight of the junior leaders on the ground making decisions as they come. Monteith, looking at about a unit look that's sitting at about 50% capability right now, could have easily said, let's sit tight. We're combat ineffective. We can't do what we need to do. We have some cover, relative cover from direct fire, not from the mortars or artillery. Let's sit and wait for reinforcements. And then we'll cover them. We'll cover the second wave. Totally within reason for him to say that. You rarely saw anything like that on Omaha Beach on June 6th. Again, he's not even in the right spot. So it's not even as though his objective is right in front of him. He'd have to move down the beach further to even get within range of that. 
Nonetheless, Monteith takes charge, organizes the men, starts moving along the wall, and eventually moves out past that cover across the open beach under heavy machine gun, artillery, mortar, and heavy machine gun fire until he finds the next covered and concealed position. Again, relative cover from the German positions, kind of at the bottom of the main cliffs ringing Omaha Beach. At this point, they're pinned down by a German strong point. The German strong points were called resistance nests, and they were systems of defenses more than just, you know, a bunker. This specific one is called WN60, resistance nest 60. WN60 housed around 40 German soldiers, 4-0, and it was armed to the teeth. I mean, it had a 75 millimeter artillery cannon. It had four mortars, an anti-aircraft gun that could easily and was turned down to fire on the beaches and at Monteith, Monteith and his men charging their position. Countless machine gun positions all throughout the trenches, reinforced firing points, even a tank turret that had been mounted on top of concrete that could fire directly into the approaches that Monteith's men would be taking. WN60, like all of the strong points, is ringed by an extensive barbed wire barbed wire and minefield network, but they have to deal with this. These strong points were strategically placed to overlook and stop any allied advance through any sort of reasonable terrain. But how is an infantry company now at less than 50% going to be able to deal with that? These anti-aircraft guns and heavy machine guns and mortars. I mean, they're, they might outnumber the Germans, but they're dug in. Tanks could be helpful. This is where Monteith's Medal of Honor really takes form. You don't want to run back through the opening. You know, he's made it across the open beach now, the killing field. But that's what Jimmy Monteith has to do because there are a couple tanks that have made it ashore in his general area, fortunately, miraculously. He runs back down to the beach under fire links up with the tanks and starts walking them forward through gaps in the barbed wire and the minefield. Again, fire raging all around. Once he gets them within range and within sight of WN60, he starts directing the tanks fire in coordination with his maneuvering infantry. So he's the fire, he's the fire support and the maneuver element kind of conducting both elements, orchestrating both elements is probably the way to say this. Before long, he knocks out or helps to coordinate knocking out two machine gun positions that allows his men, his dismounted infantry, to move around the side of WN-60. And that kicks off a one-hour fight. And by 9 o'clock that morning on June 6, 1944, WN-60 had fallen. Quite a few German prisoners were taken, and there was an opening created on the Fox Red sector of Omaha Beach. Now, this little breathing room allowed more forces to come inland. The follow-on forces did not be hit by that exact same strong point, and they started to move inland towards their next objective slowly, though. Monteith and his men are moving and consolidating as they go, and before long are hit with a pretty sizable counterattack. This was one of the major concerns on D-Day, was the counterattack being pushed back into the sea. I mean, their backs are against the sea. There's nowhere to go. The 
big concern at a high level was more of a regional or strategic counterattack from maybe Panzer divisions. That's not what Monteith faces. They're seeing more of a localized counterattack. German soldiers from other strong points or maybe reserve areas are moving in to try to take back some of this terrain. He tightens his lines, starts moving as soldiers come up from the beaches. He ties them into certain sectors of fire. He's moving from man to man along the perimeter under heavy fire, redistributing ammunition, checking on wounded soldiers, making sure those that are severely wounded get the aid they need, pulling them off the line, firing the whole time. But before too long, First Lieutenant Jimmy Monteith is hit and killed by enemy fire. Monteith would give his life at the age of 26 on June 6, 1944, on the Fox Red Sector of Omaha Beach. And for his actions that day would be posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor, one of only four that day. Now, these strong points like WN-60 could just devastate the infantry that were landing all up and down Omaha and had to be dealt with one at a time. In this case, with Monteith, the tanks did the trick. But a determined NCO with a bazooka could also work. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.